Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. It feels like it's the new year. After the Super Bowl is over, I feel like it's the new year. Dan Lost, Mike Krevchenko, we are back. Mike, I'm looking at your face. You have a big smile on. I think that means that you bet the Kansas City Chiefs. Do I have that right? Yeah, but that's I have to that statement that you just made, the new year, like I mean, you just that is so perfect. I feel like the new year doesn't get started until the NFL kind of ends and we get the because in the sports world especially our world I mean the NFL is king and runs all so that is the most I mean speaking to my soul there so I appreciate that and I did take the Chiefs um didn't do so hot on the you know on the betting side but the Chiefs did indeed come out victorious um what about you uh you know what what was what was your Super Bowl experience like well, I will say just quick, you know, we've, we've said this joke. I don't think we've said it recently, but like the sports law season for football actually peaks up during the football off season. Players generally are on their best behavior during the season. And it's when they leave the NFL facilities that things tend to happen. If memory serves, and I could, I could be off on this, but you know, certainly the Deshaun Watson stuff happened offsite unrelating to, you know, games. I think it was from like, March onward, so that would be post Super Bowl. Um, DeAndre Baker is a case we covered once upon a time. Alvin Kamara with the Pro Bowl incident in the elevator, like those are all off, you know, not during the season incident. So um, I expect we will get busier on the NFL stuff despite the season ending. Um, so yeah, certainly football season ends, sports law season is twenty four seven. We do not take a break. Um, if you're hearing a slight hoarseness in my voice, uh, Mike, I thought I placed the wager of wagers. And up until Patrick Mahomes turned into Tom Brady or turned really, I don't know, back into Patrick Mahomes, I thought I had gamed the system. I bet uh, Christian McCaffrey to win the MVP at plus 400. And I'm sitting there with this ticket, right? A good ticket. I'm like, I don't, and Purdy, I think was two to one. I think Mahomes was like, you know, even money or a little bit worse. And uh, I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, McCaffrey just won player offensive player of the year. I'm not sure why he's a, a four to one dog compared to Purdy, especially when the Niners are the favorite. It didn't really make sense. Now, I, I if memory serves, I think he had 160 all purpose yards. He had a touchdown, he had a big run in overtime. If he had just broken that run, your boy would be sitting here smiling, just like you, Mike. Just like you. But instead, Patrick Mahomes does what Patrick Mahomes does. And I lost money in the Super Bowl. Fantastic. Okay. Without further ado, I'll tell you the topics for today. Um, and then, you know, generally a pretty normal show. Um, we have not really touched upon this in the show. We don't really touch upon licensing issues, but I think it's worth covering. Um, Kyle, juice check. Juice check. Um, we're going to talk about the juice check controversy that that almost didn't happen, um, you know, in, in the recent Nike deal that has been arrived at on the licensing side. Um, we're not going to talk about Taylor Swift. Don't worry about that. But I do want to talk a little bit about the new update on Barstool's non-compete. Um, I know we covered it a little bit, but now we have we have why this non-compete was, was a no-brainer. Uh, and then we're going to bring on two guests. We're going to bring on Matt Timpanic, our resident district attorney, to talk about the biggest story in hockey. That's the juniors criminal situation. Um, five different players, an incident that goes back to 2018, so five years ago. Matt in his former life, was a prosecutor, so he'll break it down as prosecutors do. I have been told by some of our guests, when we cover criminal topics, it would help to have a criminal defense attorney slash prosecutor on. Bingo, we got one. And then 
we're going to have the winner of our NIL writing competition. That is John Kane. Uh, the number one prize, you get a big shout out. You get a big plaque if you finish top three, but only the winner got to come on the podcast. So I spoke to John a couple weeks ago. We said we'd make the dates work, and here he is. Before we get into all the business, a reminder, our podcast sponsored by Themis Bar Review. Top bar prep company in the entire galaxy. Um, they We're doing a lot of fun stuff with them. Be on the lookout. They are sponsoring our New York Law School Soccer Negotiation Competition. That is an event getting down to the, the finish line here about two weeks away. So um, we do a lot of fun stuff with Themis. They are big sports fans. So if you're on the fence about who to use for your bar prep, look no further than Themis Bar Review. Okay, Mike, now that that's out of the way, all of the uh, – I, I know how to – I. Juice Check is the name, but I want you to tell me why we are talking about not Kyle Juice Check, but the other, maybe more famous Juice Check when all said is done. Yeah, his wife has surpassed him by a good chunk uh, in social media followers and attention. Um, while in the football world, uh, yeah, Kyle Juice Check is, uh, I mean, one of the best fullbacks that we've seen in quite a long time. Uh, he's really one of the only fullbacks left in the league, it feels like. But he is insanely talented uh, at his craft, and it seems like his wife is also insanely talented at her craft. Um, she's gained insane popularity this year. Um, I'd be very surprised if uh, you know those listening have not seen some of her uh, merchandise. Uh, I mean, she basically customizes uh, NFL merchandise. So, uh, you know, her husband, uh, Kyle, has been wearing it uh, throughout the last four or five years. Um, and I know that you said we're not going to you know, talk about her and we're not going to. But I do have to mention uh, that, you know, that this really exploded once Taylor Swift was seen wearing one of her pieces. So, um, you know, she transforms jerseys into different uh, stylish apparel um it's basically um you know jackets uh sweaters shirts everything uh completely changes everything uh from it's called upcycling um and you know you transform other purchased nfl merchandise into some custom things so um it was obviously while it was gaining in popularity People had the question of whether or not this is really legal to be selling if she was selling them. Um, you know, it really depends on a numerous, fa- you know, numerous factors. Um, obviously, the NFL is partnered with um, Nike. So there is the licensing uh, issues like Dan had mentioned um, that this that could come up. Um, so while the basically we're getting through that mud right now, um, you know, and uh while that's being taken care of, uh, and while the season's going on, and while she's blowing up, uh, well, she did sign a licensing agreement with the NFL. So now she's allowed to use team logos, use their IP legally, um, you know, in designs for both women's and men's apparel. So, you know, it's crazy to kind of see, uh, you know, while obviously Taylor Swift is getting all the light for just dating Travis Kelsey, uh, I'm happy to see, you know, Christian Juszczyk, uh, you know, getting a deal and really exploding on that facet as well. Mike, that was a good breakdown. And, and just to put some kind of context on it, Kyle Juszczyk, uh got about 500,000 Instagram followers as of today. Kristen Juszczyk. As you said, maybe the more famous Juszczyk has now hit 1.1 million. So why we bring this up from a licensing perspective, you know, I, I believe the, the context, I think is correct as, as I've seen it, 
she had reached out to Nike on a couple of occasions in the past, and, and they kind of either A, blew her off, or B, said no. Um, but this situation almost left Nike no choice. When you see Taylor Swift wearing that jacket, if Nike would have turned around and, and had some type of enforcement, and mind you, right, these were Nike swooshes that were being fi- featured on these jackets, right? This wasn't just uh, something that resembled a, a Nike. These were actual use of the Nike mark. So if this was not... T- their Taylor- products, even. What's that? Yeah, I mean, it. it their products, even. Like, yeah. I mean, it, she's, you know, uh, taking them apart and sewing them back together. You know, like, th- this is literally their physical product. But too. it's one thing to do that and remove the Nike insignia. The thing that makes something a Nike, to me, is the swoosh. If it doesn't have the swoosh... To me, you can make the argument that it's not, you know, we're not going to cause some level of, of consumer confusion. But you had the swoosh on, on Taylor's Taylor's jacket of Kelsey that she wore the first time. So, you know, to a consumer, if you see a swoosh, like, I, I don't, I mean, there were, that, that has to be a Nike, right? That's the logical thought that goes through someone's head. So, you know, there were some in the space, uh, myself included, that said Nike might you know, be a little strict with the enforcement, but, you know, cooler heads prevailed. Nike made a, a business decision and said, you know what, let's, let's do a deal with her. But, um, I think it would have been horrendous publicity for Nike had they gone after her. So, you know, sometimes Nike makes that decision and sometimes they don't, um, you know, but, uh, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think it's an interesting case. I think, you know, in theory, you could have made the, the case that Nike could have gone after her, but that really would have been insane. So sometimes you can have the right legal argument, but from a PR perspective, it's a nightmare to have done that. I remember. Um, you know, I I think that's a good place to leave it. You know, it, it was a big topic. I thought it could have mushroomed a little bit bigger, but instead the opposite has happened, that someone has exploited Nike's IP and uh, – uh, seem to be better, better off for it. That's interesting, we'll say the least. Um, the other side, just in passing, we covered this very briefly. I know we've covered it on social as well. Um, you know, Barstool had this big deal with Penn, and when they left Penn, there were a lot of reporters. Uh, and I, and I know we covered it at the time. We said reportedly, allegedly, there's a non-compete here. We don't know how long this non-compete is. And then when we found out that the non-compete was six months a couple weeks ago, um, that it expired at the end of the Super Bowl, we said, wow. That was crazy that this was reported as being a legitimate non-compete. Six months is basically a, a version of a slap on the wrist. Um, Barstool announces a huge, I think the, the phrasing of Portnoy was a, quote, monster multi-year deal with DraftKings. So um, 
Barstool's making a ton of money here. And I, I bring this up. I, I always try to give people whenever there's a, a, a signal of maybe a defamation case. I always want to make people nervous and in a good way about what they post online, either for their employer's purposes or, or just getting sued. There were a lot of journalists, big J journalists that were out there reporting that Barstool had a non-compete without reference to the six months, right? So uh, Big Cat, Dave Portnoy have been out there with the receipts on various journalists that did not indicate that this was a six-month deal. So if you report something that is a knowing lie, right? If you said that this was a 10-year non-compete and they can't do any deals, and that's not true, that's one thing, right? But Dave Portnoy, Barstool, it's a public company. Um, You have to go a little bit further. Here, you know, there are some people saying that Dave should sue these journalists for defamation, but, you know, the the articles are unclear. It doesn't reference how long it is, but if someone had sourcing that they knew of this non-compete, I find it odd that they wouldn't have also known that there was, it was only six months. The way that this deal was reported that the six months was, or sorry, that the non-compete was some big, you know, some big number. And if you told me that Barstool had a five-year non-compete, like, I don't know, that might be reasonable. Two-year non-compete, reasonable. Six months is crazy. That's almost nothing. So, you know, no one, no journalist had that number as far as I have seen. Um, but you got to be really careful what you put on social media, whether you're a real member of the media, Big J, you're a Twitter journalist, as sometimes we do on Conduct Detrimental. Um, you got to be really careful of your sourcing. And as a podcast, you know, uh, I, th- we're always very careful of reportedly, allegedly. And some people got this thing wrong dead wrong. And guess what? You don't want to be on the wrong side of that barstool army of reporting this stuff as as being, you know, incorrect. So, you know, we got to touch on it. It's a non-compete. It's a a defamation side, but we are here. Um, Mike, does this surprise you that they went into bed with DraftKings of all these companies? No, they've been partnered with DraftKings before. Um, You know, they had a marketing partnership um, about 10 years ago. Um, You know, they have uh, they've had a positive relationship, according to uh, Portnoy and DraftKings seems to as well. Um, they haven't DraftKings hasn't commented yet on the announcement. Um, you know, they were focused on uh, LeBron James recently that they just reached in partnership with. Um, but the I mean, this is this is this makes sense. DraftKings is really uh, taking their big swing right now, I think, on the market, um, you know, trying like you had mentioned, you know, being publicly traded. Um, I think this is, uh, you know, their big swing to kind of get their uh, their earnings up and to really start. Um, cause FanDuel, as you saw kind of over the last few years has been, I think, you know, as someone that views a lot of sports partnerships and, uh, you know, just betting in general sports betting, uh, FanDuel was kind of the lead, the lead book, but, uh, a lot of, you know, people within the community have seemed to feel a little less happy with FanDuel and, you know, a lot happier with DraftKings. You know, I personally know a lot of people that have switched over. So I think, uh, you know, they're, kind of entrance into the market with LeBron and now Barstool. I mean, having, like you had mentioned, Barstool Army. I mean, Barstool is a in, an insane, insanely, insanely large community, loyal community. Um, so this doesn't surprise me at all. And I think it's, uh, it's a good partnership, um, you know, and very strategic, like you had mentioned. I mean, they had announced it directly after the Super Bowl. I think at like 11 to 15, uh, you know, he um, made it, Dave Portnoy made the announcement. So um, the timing like you said, right after the Super Bowl was over, um, they announced it. It was over uh, the non-compete. So 
Uh, now the Penn, who was originally with them, Penn is with ESPN, and now DraftKings Barstool has found their new sports book. And yeah, he said uh, multi-year monster deal. So I'm excited to see what what the numbers come out of that. Yeah, you know, certainly, uh, you know, and I guess we'll hit this quick. We, we've never really done a sweepstakes episode. Um, you know, the different promos that they, they, you know, it's funny. If you watch Barstool or really any of these DraftKings companies or FanDuel's the same way, you know, if you, you bet $5, you get like 200. It's like, how many people don't have DraftKings or FanDuel at this point? Um, I keep seeing that. I think it's odd, but neither here nor there. Okay. So we talked juice checked. We talked non-competes. Uh, now it is time to head to the ice. Matt Timpanic's been on, been on with us a ton of times. Former prosecutor, um, you know I love Matt, uh, and we haven't had him on in a while. So he hit me up. I made sure we were going to make this happen. And, um, yeah, without further ado, let us kick it over to our interview with Matt Timpanic. Matt Timpanic, it has been way too long. Conduct Detrimentals, resident district attorney. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back on. So I saw this story, and you and I have been trying to sync up when to come on the pod, but it's a story that I think requires your touch on this. Obviously, back in the day, you're a criminal prosecutor. Uh, now you're on the defense side. Don't panic. Call Matt Tim Panic. Every once in a while, I will say the jingle. I'll say it in my head. So I saw the story, um, you know, in the NHL. I'm not really a hockey guy. We have a lot of listeners that are. Um, but it's one of the bigger stories in the sports law space. So we've been holding it. We've been waiting for updates. And I think enough has come out at this point where we wanted to have you on. So um, by all means, uh, we have not talked about it once on the podcast. So with as, with as much detail as you want to provide, give us a, a roadmap. And then Mike and I will, will come with some questions. Okay. So what happened recently was five players, Canadian-born players, who were on the 2018 World uh, Juniors hockey team of the Canada team, were investigated and then later charged with sexual assault. The five players are the following. Carter Hart, Dylan Dubois, Alex Formenton, Michael McLeod, and Cal Foote. This is out of London, Ontario, which is, I want to say, about three hours east of Detroit, Michigan. What these allegations are alleging, the alleged victim met up with one of the hockey players for... Um, at some party, or I think it was like a function associated with the juniors. There was drinks involved, and she was invited back to the player's place where they allegedly engaged in sexual activity. It doesn't end there. It is believed that that player, is alleged, invited other players into the room to engage and then have sexual relations with the alleged victim. The alleged victim did not con- allegedly did not consent to those sexual activities. We are at the place, this has been nearly six years. To give you a long idea, this timeline spans several years, starting, I think, with the confidential settlement with the alleged victim, in this case, for several million dollars. Based on that, the Canadian government, which subsidizes Hockey Canada, said they were cutting off all funding as a result of that. And about a month later, Hockey Canada reopened the investigation and people were forced to resign, and uh, some were even fired. And then the result was, six months later, the Canadian government then supported Hockey Canada financially again. 
but it brings us closer to recently where uh, there was a mysterious kind of uh, like idea on social media that five players were granted leaves of absences. Uh, I, Cal- I think that if this sounds if this sounds right, I believe. I mean, you could tell me if this the dates sound right. I think what happened it was a kind of a dormant criminal case. Uh, wasn't really attracting any attention, no traction. And what kind of got the public's interest back in this, and, and mind you, a lot of people have never heard of this. Was uh, my understanding was a civil lawsuit that was filed by the victim that just kind of brought everything back to to a head, which you know obviously happens, but. Um, it is not quite that typical that a criminal case would be dormant. Essentially, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, but no new facts as far as we know, but they just decide, hey, I guess we got to go back and dust off this criminal case. Is that, am I, am I oversimplifying it or is that, is that, am I, am I missing something? A little bit of oversimplification, but I definitely think that this was something that was lying dormant for years because of there was a confidential settlement. And I don't know if at that time, I think there was a non-disclosure agreement provision and the alleged victim wasn't aware if they could go forward. But it wasn't until very recently that the London police actually decided to move forward on this case. The allegations are sexual assault against four of the players. And then one of them had offense against her basically facilitating this alleged sexual assault. Uh, Definitely, we have a very, very unique fact pattern because usually uh, this case should have been probably litigated years ago, but it isn't until very recently that they've been able to fully put the case together to get formal charges filed. I don't know. The London police have been very tight-lipped about the evidence they have when they obtained it and what are the facts and circumstances which actually elect which led to them actually finally uh, bringing forward this case and formally filing charges. Uh, definitely, I think on social media, what I was saying is about a few weeks ago, I start seeing players who were granted indefinite leaves of absences. I think the Calgary, Calgary Flames said that one of their players needed to take an indefinite leave for a mental health issue. That's definitely something that's going to be revisited as it goes on because that same player was one of the players who was uh, charged with sexual assault. So I'm doing, I'm looking at the announcements on social media. I was seeing players, uh, there was postings up, this player has been granted a leave of absence. Uh, We'll have no further comment at this time. What we know for following Andrew Brandt, when a team posts something like that with a very ambiguous, we're not speaking on this, usually they're pissed. And what could they be pissed about? So I'm following the tea leaves. Those all five players were on the 2018 World Junior Canadian Hockey Team, all of which had uh, different uh, various uh, listings about their leaves of absences. So I'm putting it together. I'm like, these are likely the five players. And then soon enough, sure enough, about a few days later, it became official. So where we're at right now is they haven't even entered a not guilty plea. They are just, I think that's set for April 30th, where they'll actually enter their not guilty plea. And that's where we're at right now. Okay, so that's the legal side. That's the, we'll say, the procedural history. And I think, you know, it, it bears some some analysis here. And, and Mike Krivchenko, I think of the three of us, you're probably the biggest hockey fan. My understanding is that 
all of these players, and I could be wrong, Mike Kripchak, you can tell me I'm wrong. Um, all of these players were drafted or, or had their rights secured by an NHL team prior to this incident. So it was not as if, um, at least my, no one's correcting me, so I'm going to assume I'm right for this purpose, but that these players were all associated with an NHL team by the time that this conduct had already occurred. So this wasn't, we drafted a player knowing he has this in his past. It's we drafted a player and this happened under underneath the NHL's watch. So that, you know, it's twofold. How are these teams reacting? How do these players end up on their rosters? Um, and, and that's why this is an NHL story as much as it is a junior hockey story. Um, so, Matt, I, I like your detective work in figuring out who it was. You know, innocent until proven guilty, all that stuff. Um, Mike K., this is for you. Um, it's our understanding, right, that all these players had at, at least at one point played at the NHL level? Yeah, they had uh, all been drafted a couple years earlier, um, 2016, 2017. Um, four of the five were active NHL players. Um, Alex Fermentin was, um, at the time, uh, playing in Switzerland. So um, this is, like you had mentioned, a significant NHL uh, issue, and it's now they're getting some sort of, uh, you know, questioning from other players. Um, you know, uh, Kale McCarr had, you know, responded about how, um, you know, he felt fortunate that he wasn't in that situation and there. Uh, so, you know, uh, man, I'm curious, I guess, what um, other testimony from other players uh, would be taken into account here. And, you know, is that, you know, possibly going to affect the current season or, you know, uh, you know, what the... Um, I guess uh timeline would be um for I know you had said April 30th kind of the next step but um you know that some of these players might still be in playoff contention or in the playoffs currently so this could be affecting um you know the next kind of half of the season so I'm kind of curious um what other players uh input would have with it um and you know if you see that kind of affecting the current season uh, what I can tell you is I read a quote from Bill Daly, who's the deputy commissioner of the NHL, and he said the NHL would hold off any kind of potential punishments until the legal proceedings have played out, which tells me that I don't foresee the players coming back this season. I don't foresee them coming back until this case has been litigated. There's just too much bait with the allegations of sexual assault and the seriousness of the charges Teams aren't going to have players playing and deal with the negative backlash of that. Uh, I definitely think that player testimonies who weren't charged, who were on that 2018 team, who were uh, with the players right before this alleged incident occurred, might play a factor in this. Um, what I applaud the uh, London police is they're not trying this case in the press. They're not trying this case where a potential jury pool uh, could be poisoned by telling facts that may not be admissible. They're just like, these people have been charged. That's all we're going to say. We're going to allow the process to work its way through the system, which is the correct method to how to po potentially do this. Because you do have uh, Stanley Cup champion players who have been charged with heinous and very serious offenses. So I think they're definitely, um, I don't see them playing this season and I don't even know if they're going to start to play the beginning of next season. You mentioned the timeline. Why did it, I guess, take six years? I know the police said that new evidence had come up, but is it, has there already been any updates past that? Uh, besides that kind of, I mean, somewhat of a vague 
explanation? Uh, def- definitely with charge. And here, here's the truth. We're going to be brutally honest. Um, when you're dealing with people who have like sexual assault charges and they have the access to highly priced defense lawyers, the truth of the matter is you're going to want to have your case cold before you arrest them. Because once you do, you're never going to get anything else out of them. And a not guilty or them being found innocent is going to be bad publicity for the individual bringing these charges. So before you actually do it, you got to have it cold. They didn't run into any statute of limitations issues as far as I could see. So I think they did a good job in waiting out the process and gathering all the evidence and not rushing to a decision. So what evidence they have, we don't know. And that's probably good that we don't know because that means, like I said, they're willing, they want the case to actually work through the judicial system and allow the evidence and the facts speak for themselves at trial, uh, as opposed to in the process to not poison any potential jury pool. Okay. I don't have anything further, but I am not the criminal defense slash prosecutor, uh, Matt Timpanic. Matt, are we missing anything else that we have not covered? Definitely something, if you're reading the tea leaves, um, you could potentially figure out how strong the evidence is. If the evidence is not particularly strong against the defendants, their their attorneys are going to push for a more speedier trial. Uh, so this could potentially be litigated this summer. And if they're acquitted, they would likely dodge uh, any kind of potential punishment or be less severe. Uh, if they continue this case out for a long time, they're not thinking about the, the, their clients' careers. They're thinking about their lives potentially in jail and or prison, depending on what actually happens. Uh, Matt, always a pleasure. Tell people where they can find you and your law firm. Uh, you can find me at Timpanic Law against all, across all social medias. And I'm the founder principal of Timpanic Law during doing criminal law, personal injury, and sports law in Florida. Okay, Matt, excellent, and appreciate your time, buddy. Thank you, sir. So that was Matt Timpanic. You can find him on social media, or really anywhere, Timpanic, T-Y-M-P-A-N-I-C-K. Don't panic, call Timpanic. There's a little, little nice jingle. Okay, so... um. Yeah, I thought Matt was great. Uh, Matt breaks it down as a, you know, you can tell Matt, Matt was a prosecutor. He talks like a prosecutor, walks like a prosecutor. And if it talks like one, it walks like one. He is one. So yeah, he, he was one in a previous life now and does criminal defense work, among other work at his firm. Matt's representing some golfer, um, you know, uh, a professional golfer. So, you know, um, he's, I don't want to put Matt in the hole of the criminal defense world. I just, that's how I met Matt originally, but he's since obviously expanded his, his, uh, his practice. Um, okay. So, uh, I guess we'll move on here. John Kane. John Kane is a, is a lawyer at Aiken Gump, one of the biggest firms in the country. We were honored to have, um, you know, entries from lawyers, law students across the country. And we generally read these things blind. We didn't know who we were reading. We didn't know who they were from lawyer, law student. We read them. That was part of our, our process. And wouldn't you know a big law lawyer, uh, from UVA is the winner of our writing competition. So John Kane, a uh, really good guy. I spoke to him. Um, people can, can look him up on, on socials and whatnot. Um, but yeah, uh, he's a totally normal guy. Just a listener to the podcast that said, you know what? I'll throw my, my hat in the ring and guess what? The guy won the competition. So, um, without further ado, we'll kick it over to John 
Okay. Thanks, guys. First time, long time. Thanks very much for having me on. Um, now, John, you entered a competition with lawyers and law students. And if you didn't win said competition, John, I would say that doesn't look too good. But of course, John, you emerged victorious uh, in a fantastic piece covering NIL. We have you on today to talk two college sports issues. Um, but before we do that, why don't, why don't you give people a little bit of your background and what maybe uh, caused you to enter this fun NIL writing competition, which you beat people across the country in? Thanks. Um, so I'm a lawyer. I graduated from University of Virginia Law School in 2015. Been practicing at a law firm called Aiken Gump uh, for the past, you know, eight plus years. I've heard of it. Doing a mix. I've heard of it. Yeah. Um, so doing, been doing a mix of uh, litigation, uh, covering a whole bunch of things. I decided to enter the competition because I'm just interested in sports and wanted to break into the space um, as far as just getting, you know, showing that I know kind of know what I'm talking about and also just kind of keeping myself honest and staying up to date and all, all things sports law. Yeah. You know, and that's for the purpose of the competition, you know, that we wanted to identify people like you, John, that didn't just understand what sports law was, didn't just listen to it, but we wanted to give people a valve to actively participate and contribute to the space. So well done, John, you separated yourself amongst a number of um, entries. So all, all the credit to you. Now we have you on the show. So clearly, John, you can research and write. Uh, that's clear. But can you hang with the boys on the podcast? I think the answer to that question is yes, but, um, you know, all good. We're going to talk about two college issues, talk about Alabama betting and the latest in the world of NIL. Um, I, I lectured to my class on this uh, this past week. You know, we've had, you know, the Calvin Ridley stuff. We had the uh, Mike Kripchenko and I covered this a couple weeks ago with Kayshawn Boutte, the LSU, uh, now New England Patriots wide receiver. And, you know, we have this third incident that occurs in Alabama baseball. So Calvin really gets caught because he uses his own name. Kayshawn Boutte gets caught because he uses his own name. John, how does Coach Bohannon, Alabama baseball, how does this man possibly get found out? Um, and I want to kind of talk about the, the precedent that's set by this. But I think the story and how this comes to be how he is uncovered is just as important to the rest of the story. So, John, as much background as you can provide, and then we'll all unpack it together. That sounds good. Uh, and you nailed it. This is my maiden podcast voyage, so let's see how it goes. Um, but you are completely correct in that the facts of the this case are particularly interesting, um, especially for a third-party observer, not University of Alabama, Coach Bohannon, or the NCAA. But um, so back in April of – 20, excuse me, April 28th of 2023, um, University of Alabama is about to play their arch rival LSU in baseball. And Coach Bohannon, before the game, sends some text messages to an associate of his who was in a sports book in Cincinnati um, that indicated he wanted some bets placed on LSU. Uh, the texts were very explicit. In fact, he said, hammer LSU. And he did that because he knew the University of Alabama's pitcher was not going to be playing because he was injured. And here's really where it gets kind of spirals out of control for uh, Coach Bohannon. His associate in Cincinnati uh, attempts to place a number of bets on LSU, uh, including a $100,000 bet um, for LSU to win. The sportsbook staff, to their credit, do not let him place that $100,000 bet. They limit him to $15,000 citing, quote, suspicious activity 
And that activity included statements by the associate that Alabama was for sure going to win, that if the sports book only knew what he knew, they would place the bet. And finally, even showing the textbook, the text messages uh, to the sports book staff from Coach Bohannon, indicating that the player was going to be out. So those are the facts, uh, as you can, you know, glean from that. It was pretty obvious that something was going on. And eventually some authorities were alerted to this activity, to this suspicious activity and an investigation. Began. Yeah, I I mean, I think the, the big takeaway from from my class in social media is maybe this is the dumbest person of all time. Um, hard stop. Um, I, my understanding is that that Coach Bohannon at Alabama was making about 500 grand a year from that position and SEC baseball. You know, we could talk about the revenue generating sports, which are primarily football and and basketball. But SEC baseball is, you know, in that territory of, you know, prestigious college sports Um, for this to happen. Essentially, like and the allegations are a a coach is basically saying to a runner, my my player, my starting pitcher is going to get scratched bet on the other team. That is not a Pete Rose situation where. Pete Rose claimed to be betting on his own team to win. It's, hey, my team has a disadvantage. Bet on the other team. Um, so the whole story is bizarre. Uh, and I, I took great humor in the fact that, like, the guy's like, no, 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 you don't understand. This bet cannot lose. This bet is guaranteed it's a winner. Look, here are the texts from Coach Bohannon. Here are the texts from the coach. So that's the level of stupidity of which we have never seen before. But people say there's a an epidemic in sports betting, it, it might be bigger than we know. These are the only idiots that have gotten caught that are that dumb. So, John, what do you think, what do you take from the landscape? Like, th- those are the stories we know. Unless you're a complete moron, you know, you don't get caught. That's what it, that's what it seems to be. Yeah, I mean, at least based on this case, I think that is a, a fair assumption and, and something to learn from it. I mean, to me, the actions of this this guy up in Cincinnati are particularly crazy because obviously he's doing something that is that's going to violate some sort of law or NCAA bylaw, but also to be showing the sports book who's going to be taking the other side of this bet, like, hey, you're definitely going to lose this bet. Like, why would you ever do that in order to like entice them to take this bet? I also think that you know, kudos for the sports book for initially kind of not allowing this $100,000 bet. But at the same time, they did take the $15,000 bet. So they didn't really do that well on that one. In the larger context, too, there's there's another point that we should mention. You know, we, we're just getting off the Super Bowl weekend where, you know, Dave Portnoy is betting hundreds of thousands of dollars. That type of a handle for a Super Bowl event is fine, right? Mattress Mac is betting millions of dollars on the World Series, the Super Bowl. But betting $100,000 on the college baseball game is odd. Betting $100,000 on a weekday, non-playoff, non-SEC championship game is also odd. So this happened to check a couple of the boxes that would have been caught. But again, you know, it's just that sheer level of stupidity. Um, John, what are you hearing in terms of, you know, I, I guess we'll call it punishment, precedential value. Is this just such an outlier that like, you know, it, it, we're never going to see it again? Or does this really have some precedential value on the, the landscape of just general sports betting? So I would say I, I would have, I mean, if I were a betting man, I would say something like this would happen again. Um, you know, we can kind of get into what some of the agreed upon punishments were, but 
there was already precedent um, for the NCAA to levy those punishments because this type of stuff has happened before. So it's happened before this in 2023, and I would have to imagine that just based on people being people, this type of thing would happen again. Let's see. People are dumb. Mike K., do you have anything to add here? Um, yeah, I guess uh, who would be in this situation really facing the most scrutiny or the biggest issue? The man that placed the bet or Bohannon? Because, um, you know, he obviously, I, I mean, from this story, it seems that Bohannon wasn't actually placing bets. But, you know, is there any evidence of him even like taking a cut or having some extra relationship with uh, you know, the one that placed the best. So I don't think that that is explicit within the negotiated resolution, which was reached between the NCAA and the University of Alabama. As far as, you know, punishment by the NCAA, certainly Bohannon as the coach and someone associated with the University of Alabama, he had a lot more to lose. In fact, through the negotiated resolution, um, the NCAA ordered a, a show cause order which is 15 years long, um, which basically says that any institution that hires Bohannon in the future would have to show cause as to why he is allowed to coach there. That's you know kind of boiled down to its basics. And also a five-year uh, suspension that would be served um, anytime this show cause order uh, is in place. So you know he's certainly the one who had to suffer more. I'm not sure what sort of prosecution you may have to call back the uh, resident DA to discuss the prosecution of the the associate who placed the bets, but I'm not quite sure about that one. The runner law. I guess we'll we'll figure out what to do with that. Um, so, John, you know that's an important part of the college landscape betting. I, I think we can. It's a fun story, but it's kind of pales in comparison to what's going on on the NIL level, kind of generally. So, we're recording this on. Tuesday, February 13th, we expect a decision to follow um, the University of Tennessee's battle against the NCA filed by the Attorney General's office. Earlier today, we had a hearing uh, in Eastern District of Tennessee, a federal court hearing on the temporary restraining order. At least as we are recording this, there has not been a decision entered. Um, John, what did you hear out of this case? I know, um, you know, we asked you to kind of look into it a little bit. Can you kind of tell us maybe some fun takeaways uh, from the case or, or maybe any nuggets you may have into what's happening next? Sure. Just, you know, just to cover a little bit uh, what you guys have already discussed. This is, as you mentioned, the hearing on the motion for a preliminary injunction in the case by University, excuse me, Tennessee against um, the NCAA regarding their investigation into um, Spire Sports. Um, and so I heard that at the hearing, which was apparently very well attended by the public, I'm sure a lot of media and a whole bunch of lawyers, perhaps uh, north of 10 lawyers. I think somebody, somebody somebody had a Tennessee flag out there and waving around. Yeah, I also saw that. Like a massive. Yeah, a Tennessee flag flying from a, a crane that was doing some, some construction. So I guess we know what side those guys are on. <laughs> um, but yeah, the focus of the hearing, from what I heard, is really on the irreparable harm component of uh, the pre- preliminary injunction standard. And that makes sense considering the judge's prior uh, memo or decision on the TRO, the temporary restraining order, which said that he, he felt Tennessee would be successful on the merits of its claim um, on the antitrust or that the NCAA's laws would be an antitrust violation. Um, so that's really what I had heard. And um, as you mentioned, they, the judge said that he 
plans to issue an order uh, in, excuse me, a decision in short order, but we haven't heard anything yet. Yeah, I think the word is, you know, come in the next few days. But, you know, we, we talked about it in the podcast and, and um, you know, John, I know you and I, I think we spoke about it offline, if I'm memory serves. But, you know, this this uh, irreparable harm is going to be tough while this investigation is still kind of ongoing. There is no, at least, uh, also, I'm, I'm very much pro-Tennessee. Um, you know, this is a Tennessee-friendly podcast, but I'm not sure there has been the actual harm by the nature of the investigation. What I do think that has happened, you know, we had the announcement of the Florida state punishment. We had the announcement of the Florida investigation. And we had the announcement of the Tennessee investigation and back to back to back weeks. And since then, I don't think coincidentally, we've had no announcements of investigations or punishments of any other school. Um, so I, I think this has slowed the NCA down. I think they really had to wait until there is a decision here before they decide how to move forward. And I think they got very lucky that this temporary restraining order wasn't granted prior to National Signing Day, which could have been a, a logistics nightmare if you were the NCAA. Um, that I think was February 7th. So we're here on February 13th. You know, uh, I think Tennessee AG thinks they might have a chance, but you know, by the time this comes out, we might have a decision already. Yeah. And just to follow up on on one thing that you mentioned regarding the irreparable harm standard, I think that in order to succeed, Tennessee and I, and Virginia AGs is also a part of the case. It's going to have to show that um, the laws themselves create some sort of irreparable, irreparable harm. And at least in my experience, irreparable harm cannot be remedied by any sort of um, money. So I think that's something that the NCAA will likely point to, and I'm sure they did during the hearings today, in that this this fight um, really boils down to whether or not these athletes can, you know, gain an understanding of their market value prior to entering into these agreements and prior to enrolling in schools. And a judge um, may just find that that really the harm is just monetary and therefore not irreparable. I think that's fantastic analysis. Um, and, you know, you'd expect that level of analysis in the courtroom because, um, as you alluded to, the rumors on the streets are that 13 lawyers were there between the two sides. So um, maybe maybe people just wanted to go there. But the, the only I mean, the true winner today is billable hours. Billable hours are undefeated. So there will be a winner and loser in court. Billable hours. That's that's what they're there for. Um Okay, John, listen, I, I, I want to leave you with this. Um, you know, we've had people come on the show that have set an example and, and kind of set the tone. We had Mike Scott on here uh, a couple weeks ago. Mike Kravchenko, you were on. He's someone that changed the course of his career from standard lawyer um, to sports attorney. And Mike can come on at some point. We can talk more about Mike's career. But Mike ended up working in baseball because he started to become a proficient sports law writer. And those writings were used as writing samples and he ended up getting a job through it so john kane you're our test subject listen if you become the world's greatest sports law writer the the sky is the limit you could be bringing all these huge cases to your law firm you could be going to battle with the the biggest sports entities in the world but um, i do think writing is really important uh if you're trying to kind of market yourself in a particular lane or just show that you're good strong writer and you have good research skills but if you're listening to this podcast. I'm gathering you're a sports fan. I'm gathering you're into law. So we afford people that valve. You can do with the writing whatever you want. Um, but yeah, I wanted to make sure, John, you got the proper platform. 
and the proper plugs for, uh, you know, putting yourself out there. And then if you put yourself out there in the world, good things tend to happen. So, you know, we're pl- happy to have you on and happy to showcase all of your talents. Well, thank you guys for putting on the competition. Uh, I was very happy just to be a part of it and obviously ecstatic to win. So appreciate the opportunity to jump on the pod with you guys. All good, John. We appreciate it. And uh, yeah, best of luck in, in next year's riding competition. Maybe you'll go back to back. One can only hope. Maybe I'll manscape in three times, back to back okay. to back. Ooh, ooh, Patrick Mahomes Jr. Uh, John, pleasure having you on, and uh, you know I'm sure we'll see you again very, very shortly. Thanks, guys. That was John Kane. Dan, uh, I gotta say, uh, John was awesome. You know, uh, I loved the first time, long time, as someone that kind of was in that same boat. Uh, he sounded. Like, you know, like he's been here before and, uh, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that at the time. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a cool story by John. And obviously, you know, I'm only half kidding. You know, this could be my, I got my start in, in sports, which I've said, and I know we have a lot of new, new listeners that pop in, don't know the whole stories, but I got my start in building a sports practice through writing and I cannot impress enough upon how important writing is. We had people reach out to us at our, our conduct detrimental email. And I should always remind her if I don't say it. If you want to get involved in conduct detrimental in any way, shape, or form, the easiest way that someone will respond, because we have a lot of people watching the, the Gmail box, is con, C-O-N, detrimental at gmail.com. We've had people reach out. I just missed the writing competition. When are you doing the next one? When are you doing the next one? The other one we get is, when are you doing your awards for 2024? The answer to both those questions is soon. We will have announcements coming on the horizon, but we're really, you know, we just have fun here. There's no real like awards in this. We just want to find ways to put people on a pedestal that are putting themselves out there. So um, by all means, we do a lot of fun. If you say, how can I contribute to Conduct Detrimental? Give us an idea of something that we should do that's fun and cool, and then we'll do it. Generally, the rule of Conduct Detrimental is, if is it fun? Is it cool? Does it make sense? Like, okay, we're going to do it. So um, yeah, by all means, uh continuing to kind of grow the world of sports law and, and, you know, I love seeing new generations, you know, young and old come in. Um, John and I are about the same age. So it's cool to see him win the competition. I lateraled into sports as a seventh year. And if I can do it as a seventh year, any of anybody can do it as a first year, 10th year, you know, obviously get a little bit older if you're in like your 30th year, it's a little bit tougher, but um, you know, hope you're along for the ride and you know, it's all good. We're, we're connecting like-minded people in any event. Um, Mike, I don't really have much else to add. I think I'm ready to, to end this, conserve my voice, which is still very much hoarse. Um, and I got to find those pesky AirPods. I think my, you and I were, were laughing before we started recording. Um, I think my daughter, my four-year-old came in here, stole my AirPods and is hiding them because I can't find them anywhere. So we'll deal with that. Apologies if the audio was a little off, but AirPods are a big help. So, you know, blame Dylan. It is Dylan's fault. You know, I just, when, I guess when you get kids you're able to blame a lot more on them like blaming the dog uh you know that's where i'm at right now is blaming the dog so <laughs> um all good mike appreciate it as always i think that'll do it for us here at conduct detrimental for all of us we wish you a very happy new year because it is the new year because the super bowl is over and uh yeah see you next time on another episode of conduct detrimental mm-hmm.